turn to Genesis 22 today because that's exactly what we're doing in our study of seven mountains. And we're on our second mountain today, which will be found in Genesis 22. And that mountain is Mount Moriah. And we're going to end on Easter with Mount Calvary. Amen. I'm looking forward to that as we come together on Easter and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. The actual, I mean, the literal linchpin of all history was the Carlson resurrection three days later. And uh, last week we looked at Mount Carmel and how Elijah was running from anxiety, fear, threats from the enemy. And he got into a moment where he began to, instead of confronting what was in front of him, decided to run from what was in front of him. And we all have the tendency to do that. We talked last week how if we're, we usually run from something, but when we run from something, we usually run to something. And a lot of times those things can't be, aren't healthy. And he got himself into an unhealthy place where he was dwelling underneath a broom tree and God had to feed him and supernaturally supercharge him to go 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God. We're studying mountains over these next few weeks. And he climbs the mountain. He goes into a cave. The earthquake, the wind, and the fire come. And those spectacular things that happen on that mountain, God wasn't in them. It was the still, small voice of God. It was just God coming and wrapping his arms, I think, around his son, Elijah, just to say, Elijah, I'm with you. Elijah, I'll never leave you. I'll walk through this whole plan that I have for you ahead. Get up, dust yourself off, and continue to move forward. So we see on that mountain that the encounters that we have with God are very powerful and profound in depositing something in us that is going to continue to carry us forward in our faith. And here in Genesis 22 that we're going to read today, quite a lengthy passage of Scripture, but Abraham is a main character in the Old and New Testament. I happened to look up how many times Abraham is mentioned in the New Testament, and over 70 times the character Abraham was mentioned in the New Testament. So the history of Israel, of their faith and obedience, Abraham is called the father of their faith. He's called the father of our faith because it shows what God will do in someone's life when they just simply say, God, here I am, just like we were doing just a few minutes ago, hopefully, and I hope everybody participated in just that simple surrender. We see in Abraham's life a man who by no means was perfect, but he lived a life that was pleasing to God so much so that in, in James 2.23, it literally says that Abraham was the friend of God. I don't know about you, but I want to be considered the friend of God. I want him to look at my life and to see my ways and to see my level of faith and obedience. And that's where this mountain and really what we're going to come to the conclusion of today. And I'll tell you the, what I'm going to say before I ever even say it and get down to the end. But Abraham lived such a life that it pleased God because Abraham was willing to be obedient to everything God told him to do. And in the days we're living in, I believe it behooves us as believers to be obedient to everything God desires from us, to live a life that is pleasing to God and not get our eyes on everything we see, but to keep our eyes on God and faith and just know that in this story we see the revelation because really these mountains will reveal something about us. Last week it revealed Elijah's life and how Elijah was running and it reveals the character of God that God wasn't going to leave him under a broom brush or in a cave on a mountain, but God will come to us and to lift us up and to help us when we need it. Amen? Amen. So let's look at Genesis 22. We're going to read through this and, and stop 
and make some comments along the way and to really dig into this today. Now it came to pass, verse 1, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, immediate obedience, and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, then on the third day, a lot of symbolism here, amen? The only son that Abraham loves, his, his beloved son, get up, make a journey of three days, take wood with you. We know it's pointing. There's two directions that this passage is pointing. It is pointing back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. When man fell, you had a tree. You had a knowledge, a knowing of good and evil. You had God calling Adam and Eve to be obedient to one tree, just one tree. Don't touch this one thing in the garden. You see, it's not only pointing back in these passages back to Genesis, but we also see here with, the, with hindsight, which is wonderful to read the Word of God, we know what's about to happen if you've read this story. Abraham didn't know what was going to happen. Abraham didn't know the significance of the testing that he was getting ready to go through, but we see the symbolism here that I believe is pointing back to Genesis, but also pointing to the day on Calvary when Jesus would pay the ultimate price upon the cross. So he rose early in the morning, verse 4, Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, the servants, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand, so you had the wood, the fire, and he took a knife, which the word there for knife is actually a word there called eater. It's, it was a double-edged knife, and what it meant was if you had a double-edged sword, a double-edged knife, it would be able to do what it was created to do, which was to eat. There's a lot of symbolism there. And he says, So Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering, laid it on his son, took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he says, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Literally, the, the verbiage there, if you look back this way for just a minute, literally the verbiage there is that when it says God will provide, it literally is, is Elohim, the name of God, sees. Everybody say sees. Aren't you thankful God sees you this morning? I am because we need to have an understanding that, in other words, it was a euphemism in the language that we use today that if somebody were to come and ask me for something or ask me to do something, we have a, an idiom in our language that says, I'll see to it, right? I need you to do, Leah coming and saying, hey, I need you to fix the front door. It's a little wobbly. I'll see to it. And so there's the euphemism there that it's not only just God provides, but it literally is saying in the language, he's the God who has seen. He's the God that sees the need. And Abraham's trust and faith was in such a place that he could be walking up the mountain with the wood, the fire, 
and his son that God has called him to sacrifice, the promise, the one that he had prayed for, the, the, the very one that he had, had placed all of his future generations where God had said, Abraham, your descendants will be like the sand shores of the sea. And this is the one that this promise is going to come through, his lineage, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, this very one. And he just looks at his son and he says, son, God knows where we are. God knows what we need. And God will see to it. Verse 8, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, anytime you see that in scripture, that is a pre-incarnate Christ breaking in, the angel of the Lord, called to him from heaven. I mean, I didn't have this in my notes, but think about that, this for a minute. The very, the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is calling with his voice from heaven, saying, don't slay him, even though he knew in eternity, past, present, and future, that he would come on the scene and pay the price for our sin. Isn't that amazing today? Do not lay your hand on the ladder, do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Heavenly Father, as we break open your word this morning, I pray that the helper would be here. I pray, Father, that we would stick closely to your word and learn what you desire for us to learn today. That, God, anything that's said of Jason Hanks, let it fall by the wayside. But whatever's said under the unction and anointing of Holy Spirit, I pray, as always, that it would go into the hearts of these precious saints today. That it would create fruit in our lives, fruit of trust, fruit of obedience, fruit of even though, Father, sometimes we can't see what you're doing, we say today that we trust you in all things. Help us to learn your word. Help us to be obedient to your word and help us to grow today, Father. We love and praise you in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You know, this passage begins with this, after these things. So I think it's important to put some context to the character that we're studying today in the person of Abraham on our second stop, Mount Moriah. Interesting place, interesting mountain that carries all the way through the Bible. We see that Solomon built his temple upon what the, the Israelites believed to be this place where he sacrificed. Uh, all throughout scripture it's talked about this was one of the areas that as we'll look at in a few weeks, Jesus was crucified. But when it says after these things, it would be easy today to talk about great faith and great obedience because this really was a test of tests. For Abraham. This would have really been a moment where in his life, Abraham, and you could say this morning, eh, 
Pastor, I'm going to check out about now because I don't believe I'm a person of great faith. I don't believe I'm a person that has great promises from God. Can I tell you this morning that you have a promise over your life that God wants to introduce you to? And not only introduce you to, but help you raise that promise, help you, help, to, help you to cling to that promise. But Abraham, we could look at his life and say, man, Abraham's the father of faith, so he just lived a perfect life, always obeyed God. Well, nothing could really be further from the truth in the scriptures. Because if you look back at Abraham's life, he begins by God calling him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, this place where he was living, and they certainly were worshiping many pagan gods, And the gods would have been just little pagan idols that they put up on their mantle. And whatever needs you had, then you prayed to this god. If you needed the the rain to come and bless the crops, if you needed an animal healed, if you needed this. So this whole pantheon and array of gods, the, the one true God shows up to Abraham and begins to speak to him and calls him out of the place he was living in. God shows up and he says, Abraham, I'm sending you out. Okay, God, where? I'll show you when you get there. And I don't know about you, but I can't even get my wife and kids to get in the car before, unless I tell them exactly where we're going. So imagine that conversation with his wife, who at this time is Sarai, but Sarah, his wife, he goes to her. God has called us away from home. By all accounts, he would have been a fairly wealthy man, so he did have a lot of, a lot of things to leave behind. But understand, when God calls you and you begin to walk in obedience, you may not see exactly where it is that you're going, but you can trust that God is going to lead you and get you there. But he does that. He gathers up his family, his, his livestock, everything else, and begins to move out of there. And it's pretty quickly when I say he went off, because some pretty dark stuff starts to happen in the story. Because on two occasions, the places where he found himself in, Sarah, his wife, must have been very beautiful. And another thing to remember is that they were pretty advanced in age. At this time that God calls him uh, out of the earth of the Chaldees and sends him on this trip that where he says, every place where your foot treads, I'm going to show you that that is going to be an inheritance. You're going to have land. You're going to have descendants. You are going to literally father and birth an entire nation of which I will bless them to be a conduit of blessing to all the people around him. And we know all the story that happened. He gets in trouble with Lot. He and Lot are quarreling and they separate. And Lot chooses Sodom, pitches his tent towards Sodom. Abraham was a, such a man of faith that he said, Lot, you choose where you want to go. And I'll let God lead me where he wants to give me. And this level of faith that he operated by was quite astounding. Until somebody took a liking to his wife. Because on a couple occasions he lied and said, well, that's my sister. So when we talk about this great test and when we talk about after all of these things, we need to put the context of Abraham walked by faith and not by sight. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, The book of James tells us that, uh, as I mentioned before, James chapter 2 says that Abraham was the friend of God. And Abraham is called out of this land and he has this conversation with God. And later on in life, God promises him that his wife, Sarah, even though they're well advanced in years, his wife, Sarah, is going to bear, bear a son. Now, you would think if that promise came to either you or I, of whatever promise God has for us, that we would look at that and say, okay, this is going to happen immediately. It was 25 years between when God <laughs> promised him that, that Sarah would birth a son. And what we see in his life is he didn't always remain in faith because he looked at the situation and he said, well... I, 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 this hadn't happened the way God said it would happen, so I'm going to fix it myself. Anybody else try to fix stuff for God? <laughs> okay, I'm in the right room. 
Because Abraham was one that said, okay, we'll fix it. And Sarah comes and she says, you know, uh, this didn't happen in the way God said it would happen. So there's my maidservant Hagar and just go over and lay with Hagar. And, you know, that caused them problems. I'm sure even in their marriage down the road where the jealousy began to, uh, you know. And I'm sure Sarah was like any of our wives in here when he said, you told me to do it. And she said, you've never listened to me before. This is the one time that you actually heeded what I said, Abraham. And so my point in laying out the foundation for what I want to talk about today is simply this, is we can look at the life of Abraham as this father of faith, as somebody that was very much tested in a very, uh, a very miraculous way, in a very uh, difficult way, rather. And we can look at his life and we say, ah, there's nothing about my life that relates to that. But can I tell you this morning... We can all be great people of faith because the object of our faith isn't our faith. It's the one in who we have our faith in. One of the big themes we're going to talk about today, and we see this in the scripture, is Abraham's trust in God. No matter what it looked like with his physical eyes, he had learned throughout a process in his life of making mistakes And God having to fix some things for him and also at other times saying, God, if this is what you're telling me to do, if this is what you want me to do, because I love the part of the scripture that says, and immediately the next morning he gets up and begins to prepare for what God told him to do. That immediately there was an immediate obedience to the voice of God in his life that I think over time he had learned that I better not delay in doing what God has told me to do. And Isaac's name literally means laughter. It literally means a better maybe connotation for this story is not just laughter and the joy that God's promise was finally birthed through Sarah, who God said it would be birthed through. Not just the joy of that, but imagine he had laid eyes on this promise of God when he was two years old. And he brought laughter. He brought joy to Sarah and Abraham's heart. He was eight years old and he's beginning to grow strong. And every time they'd see him walking around, they would look and say, this brings joy. This is the promise that God promised. This is the one who all of our future, all of our hope, everything that that God has promised is all encapsulated in this young Isaac at eight years old that I see walking around and playing and We enjoy him and he enjoys us. And then you get up 12 years old and he would still be bringing joy and laughter and the promise of God. And even even the pain of the past that Abraham had walked through when he disobeyed God, when he didn't fully tell the truth in other areas of his life and things that happened throughout his life. It wasn't just the promise. But Isaac would have been a, a, a symbol of even the pain and difficulty that he had walked through all that time. So my point is, is when God comes and says, I want you to give me your son, your only son, this would have been the tests of tests. And it goes on to say that after this, the next part says, and then God tested him. Everybody say tested. Now, I wish that the Lord's tests came with flashing lights and sirens, and beeps, and, and everything else. Just uh, it, uh, you, you've, you, Especially if you're of a certain age here, you've seen this on the TV before, but I grew up in a time when there was three channels, right? 
not just three channels, but I was the remote control. I was the third of, of four boys born, and I was of the age where it seemed like I was always the one to have to turn the TV up or down, or especially when I was at my grandparents' house. My grandparents, and there wasn't any of this flat screen TV stuff, y'all. You know what I'm talking about. That thing was the size of a, of a large desk. I mean, it was wood and the big giant speakers with the little things, and you had this big cabinet with this... TV in the middle, and I'll never forget, at the end of a night when all the broadcasting had finished, you got the national anthem, baby, yeah, I think we need to get back to that in this country, I think it would help some things, amen, you weren't supposed to clap at that, it was totally side note to the story, I had somebody tell me a while back that his dad would be asleep for two hours in his lazy boy, and he'd hear that, that that uh, national anthem come on, and by the end, he'd be in his boxer shorts, standing up, saluting, just half asleep. Just. But after that went off, if you recall, there was a test. Lines and... Or at other times, you would hear from the other room, this is only a test. If this had been an actual emergency, this would have been followed by... Right? We've all seen that. It's something in a year's past, but it shows us in our spiritual lives that I wish the Lord would come and say sometimes, this is only a test because we have hindsight that we're looking at this story from where we can read the rest of the passage and we can read about Abraham in the New Testament, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, where it talks about Abraham's faith and how he followed and believed God and even, even believed God to the point where he believed, Hebrews 11 tells us, that even if he did have to slay his son, God is able to resurrect that son. So even if a promise, you walked in here and you thought, that died 20 years ago, let me tell you something today, God can resurrect the promise. God can resurrect what He tells you if it's necessary because we serve a God of resurrection power. But it says, God tested Abraham. In church, tests reveal two things if you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes physically, then mentally take this is a note in your mind. Tests reveal two things, because I was not a good test taker in school. I don't know if anybody else was. I was not. Tests reveal two things, what we know and what we don't know, right? Tests reveal what we know, and then a test will reveal what we don't know. Church, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. The test, when we come out on the other side, has the ability to deposit something inside of us that we didn't have before, and it also has the ability to show us something about ourselves that we don't know and show us something about God that we don't know. So it has that ability. It'll show you what you do know, and it has the ability about ourselves and about God. And then it'll show us and has the ability to show us about God and ourselves. That's really any mountain that we climb, any altar that we build, any, anything that the Lord tells us, I want you to be obedient in this, and we don't know how it's going to work out. We don't know exactly what God's plan is. We just know that we have a promise from the Word of God, and if God said it, honey, God is a promise-keeping God. But in the middle of it, setting out on the journey of three days... And I don't know about you, but I see the immediate cutting the wood, packing the donkey, calling the two servants, calling Isaac. Isaac, we're going to make a journey. And I kind of get the feeling that it wasn't in the beginning that Isaac or Abraham maybe balked or faltered or 
kind of said, man, are you, God, this isn't what I know of you. You're a blessing God. You're a giving God. You're not a taking away God. You're, you're not a God like these other gods that others worship all around us all the time that are constantly sacrificing their children. And sac- human sacrifice was something that was going on. The Baals and the Ashtaroths and these, these gods would say, I want you to sacrifice these things. You're actually a God who has poured and given miraculously into my life. And I don't think it was in the beginning... But I think during the journey of those three days, it would have been difficult to continue to put one step in front of the other knowing you're getting closer to the place of sacrifice. Because a test will show you what you do know and a test will show you what you don't know. And I kind of get the impression that as he's walking, he's saying, in his mind, I'm sure, looking at Isaac. Because remember, when he looked at Isaac, it would have brought joy and mirth and laughter. That's what his name literally meant. So he sees Isaac, and he sees Isaac walking, the donkey, the wood, the, 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 the tools to make fire, and the sword and the knife, sheath probably maybe on the donkey or on Abraham's side, knowing that these are the very things that I'm going to have to build on top of this mountain God will show me. And I'm going to literally have to sacrifice my future. I'm going to have to sacrifice my, my very beloved son in whom... I am well pleased and is growing up. And at this point, by scholars and theologians would tell us that Isaac wouldn't have been a young man anymore at this time. He is probably anywhere from 15 to 18 to 20 years old. So he's a grown man walking with his father here. And for decades, Abraham has been living in tents. He's been moving around. And finally, this promise of Isaac has arrived. Arrived. And there's laughter. And every time he looks at Isaac as a little boy growing up, he reminds himself of God came through on his promise. And and God comes and says, Abraham, I'm going to test you in this. Abraham, what you have been believing for, that thing that you worked in faith for, that thing that I had to continually come and say, keep believing the promise because the promise isn't, Hagar and Ishmael, the promise is Sarah and Isaac. That's the promise that I made to you. So don't go trying to make your own promises. You need to trust him. All this that he had trusted for, all this that he had lived up for in his life is now being asked of God for him to lay it upon an altar of sacrifice. And as I read that the last few, last couple weeks really, and, uh, but especially the last few days, and I'm going to take a little bit of liberty, but I think that we all get into the same place that Abraham got into at the time he was living in. Because I think the time that he was living in, he was well advanced in years. He would have been probably about 110, 120 years old. His son's growing up in the house. So he's advanced in years. And I think he even grew to a place. You see, the thing I always notice about Abraham, and I think that we should notice this in our spiritual lives, is Abraham was somebody that was always building altars to God. When he came out of the Ur of the Chaldees, when he came out of the land God was calling him, one of the first things he does is come into the land that God was giving him, and he builds an altar to God. An altar connotes a place of worship and sacrifice to the living God. And I think he got to a place, this is my opinion, but I'm saying this by way of my own life, because in my own life, those times, because I think Abraham got really comfortable I think Abraham got to a place where he quit building altars in places where he was going to sacrifice to God and to, to, to follow God in a very deep, profound way. I think he lost track of that. 
Because church and, and somebody, and, and you may know this person, uh, Buddy and Cindy, Johnny Wade Sloan up in Hamilton, Alabama, uh, Hamilton Ohio. Lee and I uh, were missionaries and we were visiting his church and it happened to be the church that the people we worked for, for the missions organization, they went to church there. And uh, this is so long ago, we would probably only been saved about six, eight months and we went to dinner uh, lunch after that with just uh, the leaders of the ministry and Pastor Johnny and me and Lee, and we're sitting at the table. And uh, he obviously, I was young, Lee and I were just newly married, didn't have kids yet, any of that. And as soon as we started talking, he started just pouring out wisdom to us, and which I appreciated very much because it always stuck with me. And he said, Jason, he said, your life's like a, a track. If you look at a track, it's, a, it's an oval, right? So you got straight stretches, especially right here at Daytona. You guys get this. You old rednecks get this, this analogy. You got straight stretches and you've got curves. And he said, the straight stretch on this side are your younger years when you're growing up and your parents are taking care of you and you're, you're you know, uh, doing what's right up until a point when you usually hit a teenager and you kind of maybe go off track. He said, that's a curve. He said, if you see, notice people's lives, a lot of time it's in the curve of a young man or woman when they begin to make wrong choices and go off track. He said, if the Lord is gracious and compassionate, they come back to him and they get on the straight stretch. Well, straight stretch, many of you in life are in right now is you're busy, you're going 100 miles per hour, raising families, going to, going to cheer banquets and taking the kids to t-ball and trying to make sure you got enough money to pay for groceries and all these kind of things. That is the straight stretch on this, this place of life that we get into that goes really fast, and you're almost too busy to mess anything up. And then we see that Abraham got into a place, in my opinion, later on in life that we would consider something called middle-aged. He said, Jason, middle age is when a lot of people go off track again. They don't keep their focus on the right things. They don't keep their focus. In other words, they forget that they built their life putting everything on the altar to God. And they forget that principle in their lives. So sometimes God comes to us at middle age. I want to tell you something about middle age. A two-seat convertible is not going to fix your midlife crisis. (laughs) Amen? Amen? A shorter skirt is not going... Sister, come on. Is not going to fix your a tattoo of the Lord's Supper, gentlemen, on your back is not going to fix your midlife crisis. And I know I'm taking some liberty here, and I don't mean to say that Abraham was necessarily in a midlife crisis. What I say is, when we get later on in life, sometimes the tendency is to trust more in what we've accumulated than the God who called you and helped you to accumulate all that stuff. I'm just saying that the test probably had a lot more to do with the fact that Abraham was probably relying on his own power, strength, and all the accumulation that he had accumulated. And the very thing that was the prize accumulation, the very thing that was the prized promise that, again, God had promised, God had supernaturally given, God shows up one day when everything's just going well, it's going hunky-dory, you know, the, the, the flocks are grazing, the, 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 the house is good, I finally have a place to settle, I finally got somebody to pass everything down to, that God is going to bless for generation after generation after generation. And literally, I think Abraham just became comfortable. 
And listen, comfort. One thing that's been on my heart since the beginning of the year is mountains and altars. And how we are to continually, in every age group that's under the sound of my voice, which we have everything from young families in their 20s all the way up to folks uh, that are in the later years. I'm trying to put this delicately. <laughs> You're in the golden years. Yeah. Okay, let's just put it that way. You're, and, and I'm heading there myself. But I've been telling myself, I don't want to become the type of person that misses God's voice and misses the next great sacrifice that he would want me to bring because it says, and God tested Abraham. And tests reveal what we know and they reveal what we don't know. They reveal what we really know about ourselves and they reveal what we don't know about ourselves. They reveal what we know about God. God is a, God is a provider. God is a leader. God is one who led him to this place. God is a giver. God is a blesser. God is a protector. God, are, God is gracious and merciful and compassionate. All the things we know about God. But if you don't think God would come and mess with you sometimes and say, Hey, that probably has a little bit too much space in your life. I want you to lay it down before me. He absolutely will call you to do that. He absolutely, when seasons will come and evaluate and test us. And number one today, we see the obedience. Everybody say obedience. Obedience. The obedience of Abraham. That's what Abraham did throughout his whole life. He built altar after altar after altar. Abraham had a lifestyle of altar. He wasn't trying to make things happen. Abraham as the father of our faith, and we need to see this. He wouldn't try and he finally learned you can't make things happen, but I can build an altar and worship God. And then step back in faith and allow God to work out the promise. So we see the obedience of Abraham. And we see that God tested Abraham's faith by calling him to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. And this was difficult. I don't want you to miss this. This was a difficult and shocking request from God. The son, the promised son, again, we're pointing towards, pointing back to Genesis, but this is so much, so much that points towards the cross of Christ. Amen? But like Abraham, our obedience to God should be unconditional and it should be immediate. Amen? The promise. This is no plan B. This was it. And he's looking at the cost in the past to, where, to get where he was. God, I've, I've left home. God, I've left family. God, I've left business. God, I've left these things behind because you called me. And I walked a difficult journey moving from place to place because I never really had a place that you allowed me to call home. So he packs up. He splits the wood, a tree. And then secondly, if you're taking notes, we see the clarity of God's commandment. I want you to see the clarity that's in the command that he gives him because I don't want you to look at this passage on this Mount Moriah and say that this was just random. This was well thought out by God. The level of detail shows us that God's plan has been carefully thought out and was not a random test. It was a plan test. Because we also see the foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice of God's only son, Jesus, on the cross. In the the clarity of God's command, we should trust in the clarity and sovereignty of God's plan in our own lives, even when we don't understand it. Amen? Amen. God never promised you that you would understand everything, but He did promise you that you could trust Him in all things. And that's what we see here. God's plan for you and the promise for you is carefully thought out. 
God isn't random with our lives and the calling that he has upon our lives. You know, he's called in in James 2, the friend of God. And I've got some friends, and a lot of those friends, I don't understand them. Amen? I think if you do understand them, you probably don't make good friends because people I'm friends with are opposite of me. And that's a good thing because if they were just like me, I'd get so annoyed at them being just like me that I probably wouldn't be friends with them anymore. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than ours. So we see and look back and say, okay, God tested Abraham and we see the finished product of it. We see the cross. We're looking at it from the lens of the cross on this side in, the, in, the, in this disp- dispensation we're living in. But he had to trust. Everybody say trust. He was called the friend of God because he simply trusted God. And that's really what faith means, church. You say, he had great faith. He's called the father of faith. And what does that mean? Let me tell you in a simple way what that means. And we're going to talk about faith at the end. But what that means is he just trusted God. That even if he's calling me to sacrifice this, I believe that he can raise it up. And then he goes on to say very specifically the the clarity of God's uh, call and command to him was that I want you to offer this as a burnt offering. Everybody say fire. So he wanted to take the promise, lay it on, a, on an altar of wood, and sacrifice it, and then as a sweet-smelling savor to God, as an offering burning going up to him. And, and by way of just a side note, but it is very important to understand, that there is fire in the Bible, amen, that talks about how, and it's called the flames of heaven. In other words, when we go and we stand before Jesus, just like these YWAM missionaries yesterday went to be with Jesus unexpectedly, we do not know, and nobody here is promised tomorrow. Nobody. So what God does us as a favor is he disciples us and, and grows us into all things Christ throughout our lives is he's going to come at moments and he's going to have a very clear calling of what it is he wants you to lay upon the altar to him. And God is not a God that's doing that so that he can take something away. He's doing that so he can add something to your life. Because there will be a taking away, but I guarantee you that he's a God who also blesses and adds. And I know in my life, many times, I've said, God, I would rather you deal with this issue or this sin issue or this this attitude or this thing in my life on this side of heaven rather than you have to burn it up on the other side of heaven. Because the Bible clearly teaches and tells us that we're all building with something this morning. You are either building with wood, hay, and stubble, or you're building with the precious things of the kingdom, gold, silver, and fine jewels. And it says that day will reveal what it is we have been building on. And Abraham was building a life. He was looking at the promise. He was joyful of the promise. And I think he just simply forgot to to give God glory that that promise is not your source, Abraham. God is your source. And when God comes and he says, I want you to offer something, we need to understand that maybe that very thing that he's calling us to lay down and to be burnt up with fire is something that would even hinder you on the other side at the judgment seat of Christ. Listen, if there's a bad attitude in me, I'd rather God burn it out here than burn it out on the other side. Because it says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will, there will be sadness it, it, like, God, that was in me? That's why we need to continually lay our lives open before the eye of God and say, God, I want you to come and change things in me now so that they could be burned up on this side. He comes and he builds an altar of obedience to God's word. 
And it's not just to remove things, but when the fire of the altar comes, it doesn't just remove things, but it reveals things. Amen? Amen. It'll reveal what you are trusting in, but it will also reveal God's goodness and faithfulness in our lives. The fire is meant to reveal. It's meant to reveal what we're trusting in. So then third, this morning, I want you to see the response of Abraham. Everybody say response. Abraham obeyed without hesitation, rising early the next morning, and he takes Isaac, he takes the two servants on this journey. Abraham's immediate response shows his complete trust and faith in God. And we should follow Abraham's example and respond to God's call with faith and obedience. He responds quickly and immediately, but like I said before, it's that three-day period that I tend to get hung up on. Because I know in my life there have been times God says, I'm coming to you, I want you to lay this up on the altar, I want you to sacrifice this for me, I want you to lay this down. And I'm usually like, okay, Lord. And then I begin to talk myself out of it. Anybody else? It's that three days is that testing period. Of course, we know the three days is symbolic pointing at the cross and the three days Jesus was in the grave and he rose again. But what is Abraham's response? He says, I will go on this journey. I will climb this mountain. I will build an altar that God told me. And I am going to put all of my plans. I am going to put all of my dreams. I am going to put all of my wants up upon that altar. And I'm going to give everything to God, my future, my hopes, my fears, my what-ifs. And don't think it was just all hopes, dreams, and future. But I think it was also, and this is where some of you may be this morning, some of you need to put the pain up on the altar that you've experienced in the past. You carry that like a heavy weight, amen? And don't think that there wasn't pain in Abraham's life. Don't think that there wasn't pain involved with God to say, hey, I'm, I'm taking you out of the place where you're living and you're blessed and you're loved. And you, he was, a, from what we understand, he was a wealthy man that when he went up and left, he took herds and, and cattle and everything else with him and began to live a nomadic life. And there had to have been pain involved. And there would have had to have been pain involved in separation from his, his relative lot. And the quarreling that broke out, and Lot went that way and I went this way, but he chose to continue to follow God even in his pain. You can't tell me that there wasn't pain involved with messing up in, 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 in the Hagar and Ishmael thing. So it's not just the hopes and dreams that he's laying up on there. It's all the even pain of his past. James uses Abraham as an example of faith. And we know that James said this, Faith without works is dead. So we're talking about obedience, we're talking about walking a path and continuing to do what God said to do, we're talking about somebody that operated by faith, and literally, I want you to know that that what we see here is such, I I look at this test and I say to God, Lord, this is is high level testing stuff here. I look, at, I look at this story and I think, man, Lord, how I, just, I can imagine God coming to me and saying, you know, that most prized thing that you love so much, I want you to lay that down. But can I tell you something this morning? God will come to us all the time and be able to remove things that we are, that we are trusting in more than we're trusting in Him. And faith at its very core is simply a trust in God. Trust in His Word. So I want to end today with how do you grow in faith? How do you grow in faith? Number one, you grow in faith when you have extravagant obedience to God. 
He waited years, waited, 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 and God miraculously gives this son. Then years later, God comes to him in this story and informs him, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice this. And what he decided was that he was going to radically obey God in this instance. Of course, in the story, we know that God, calling from heaven, stops him, stays his hand, do not lay a a hand on the lad. But he was willing to go all the way through with his extravagant obedience. And here's the thing about this story when it says, and then God knew. There's not anything God doesn't know. Amen. Amen. What it's doing is pointing back, in my opinion, when you see the tree, when you see the knife, when you see some of the symbolism that not only points to a future sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, but also pointing back to the garden when it said in the garden that you shall know the difference between good and evil. There's a lot of things going on there that now God knows that you'll be obedient no matter what. One of the people in the garden, they were not obedient to what God told them to do, so man fell. And this is a restoration of that. But what God wants us to see here today is this interaction as a demonstration of extravagant obedience look like God wants this to be an example for all generations of what it means to grow in faith. If you want to grow in faith, you just practice extravagant obedience. Amen? Amen. That's not popular in the church today, is it? Because James said, faith without works is dead. And somebody would come back and say, oh, yes, but Paul said you're justified, you're saved by faith and not of works, not of your, lest you, anyone should boast. And we understand that the basis of our lives is faith in God and his finished work on the cross. But let me ask you something this morning. Does that very faith that you profess cause you to actually obey what God has told you to do? Because the Bible clearly says that if it's the faith that never produces obedience in your life, then it's dead faith. It's not living faith. Our faith should be extravagant. Faith is from a relationship. Amen? Listen, the Holy Spirit, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit lives within your spirit. And that is a place of constant communion with God. Abraham, the father of faith... He had a very tight relationship with God. In the, in, in when God spoke, he was listening for God to tell him what to do. And what you do to grow in faith is you store up God's word in your heart. Amen? This isn't rocket surgery, as President Bush said. It's in rocket science. Get the word in your heart. So God doesn't speak to me. You have a whole book of God speaking to you. Say it out loud. (laughs) God's speaking. Right? So we have the the Word of God, and when you get the Word of God in in your heart, then you are now conversing with the power of God and the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God will bring that Word to the forefront of your mind. But you must hide the Word in your heart. You must be in a place of a relationship in prayer and the Word so that God can bring you to a place of extravagant obedience, which means you're listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because secondly, thirdly, faith comes from hearing. In hearing by the Word of God. Now I want to point out that that doesn't mean that faith comes from hearing a word from 20 years ago. Faith comes from hearing the now Word that God is speaking to your heart. You say, I don't think God's speaking to me. I promise you God is speaking to you. 
He's not a God. I mean, I, I heard this uh, analogy one time, and I thought, well, that makes sense to me, and I believe this. And I've, I've experienced this now, the 20-some years I've walked in it, is I have kids. And I wish when they turn 18, they would just move off and quit. No, I'm kidding. I'm quitting. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's amazing how much more stuff my kids issue. I'm getting the look. I'm getting the look. I'm getting the look. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't talk. I don't stop talking to my kids. That's that, it's that simple. Because there's a, there's a vein of theology and biblical teaching that says, oh, God quit speaking to people. Hogwash. In, in my theological opinion, God is speaking to you. You just aren't listening. And the reason you're not listening is because you don't want to hear what He's telling you to lay upon the altar on Mount Moriah. <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're not listening because just like Abraham could have chosen to say, Lord, there they are. That's what we do, right? He didn't say, Lord, there they are. He said, here I am. Because God comes and asks something maybe difficult from you and you're like, can't you ask them? Right? Ask for the thing that He loved the most. A now word from God will build your faith. Faith comes from hearing. Number four, faith functions through prayer. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So, according to the scripture, faith is both substance and faith is evidence. So, faith is the mirror of the heart that reflects the realities of God's world into our world. Faith is the substance of an unseen realm. Listen, We oftentimes think in this mountain that we see and studied in Genesis 22 should tell us something very powerful that there is an unseen realm and we think that everything that we can see, taste, touch, and feel and hear affects that world. And honey, that is not the way it teaches us in the Bible. Everything there affects this world. So if you want to get communication and a a promise from God, you can't get it in the natural. You've got to get it in something supernatural. Amen? Amen? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You have to have a Word. And whatever is in the supernatural realm of heaven, and listen, if it's there and you're a Christian, whatever is there should be happening in your life here. That's called faith. Faith has substance. When I go to a restaurant, one particular restaurant when I go up and order, Lee and I were there a few months ago. You go up and order, and they give you a number that you put on the side of the desk. Now, take that analogy and apply it to your spiritual life. You know the menu. You know what God said you could have. You know the promises. In other words, there are promises for everything that you're facing in your life today. There's a promise from God for it in His Word. So you go to God in prayer, you get a now word from God that God says, yes, I have come and I am going to heal, I am going to provide, I am going to deliver. You get a promise from God with a now word from God that now begins to reflect God's reality in the unseen spiritual realm that God wants to bring into the natural realm. And and much like that request, you get a receipt and you get a number. Amen? Now, if I'm sitting at that table, church, and I'm sitting there and I've got my number on the corner, I could have somebody walk in off the street and walk by me and stop and look at me and say, well, what's that for? Well, that's the promise of the hamburger I just ordered. (laughs) 
And they would say, no, 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 no. You've been fooled. That promise isn't going to come. That's just a number that's going to sit there and you're going to get tired of waiting and you're going to sit here for hours and you're never going to receive what it is. You walked up to the cashier and let me tell you something else, honey. You don't pay with your own money. Your promises are yes and amen in Jesus because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that was made upon that cross is the currency by which we as believers have faith, not in yourself, but we can trust a sovereign God at any moment of our lives. And that number is there, and they say, oh, no, no. And you say, oh, yes, yes, yes. Here is my receipt. The promise of what God wants to do is in the word that you're holding in your hand this morning. And we can reflect that by continuing to believe that, yes, I may not have got and received what I ordered, but honey, let me tell you something. God is faithful. God is true. And it says right here that God is Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who provides. He looks up and and by faith, he looks up and he says, he's going to do what God said to do, even though it was going to cause him the most pain that he was going to experience in his life. But he still said, God, I have so much trust in you that even if I do this, I believe you could raise him from the dead. And another element to that that I didn't really study too much, but you're talking about, let's just say that, uh, that Isaac's 18 years old. My son was standing right over here during worship. I put my arm around him. And thought again, you are a big dude. You're just a, he had boots on. He's like five inches taller than I am. And just he's been working a lot lately. And he's building muscle and eating me out of house and home. It's like, bro, you got your own money now. You go get your own Twinkies and leave my Twinkies alone. But he doesn't. So I had my arm around him and I was thinking about this very thing. But think of the submission of Isaac. Which again is a parallel of Jesus Jesus, he said, nobody takes my life from me. The world out there says, oh, they killed Jesus. No, Jesus willfully laid down his life for you and I so that the promise of salvation and the promise of protection and the promise of provision and the promise of a new day in some of your lives when you're walking under a cloud, listen, Jesus can bust through that cloud and you begin to speak the word of God in faith. You begin to believe God more than the circumstance that you're walking in. But he had to willfully, because I'm thinking Abraham at 110 and Isaac at 18 working the farm could have said, no, I'm not doing this. But we see the submission to the will of God in this story that's absolutely beautiful and incredible for Mount Moriah. And the currency of heaven is faith. Everybody say faith. Faith. Buddy, if you'd come, if I could have everybody stand today, I'm going to bring this down to a conclusion. We talked last week about God's love and concern. Again, every test will reveal what you know, and it will reveal what you don't know. Most everybody living in the time of Abraham, if he would have walked by another traveling caravan as he's going the three-day journey to Mount Moriah, which also happens to be the same area through the years that Jesus literally walked into and cleansed the temple where Solomon's temple was built, all these things that happened was on this very mountain that God used all throughout the decades. But it wouldn't have been a shock to the people living to that day. They said, well, where are you all heading? Well, I'm heading to sacrifice my son, my only son. And they said, okay, good luck. Have a nice day. There's an there's a oasis about another mile up the road. You can get your drink of water before you go. So it reveals something we know. Everybody thought they knew that this God was like all the other gods, and all he wants to do is take, 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 take. But the revelation that comes on Mount Moriah as we lead up to Easter is, oh, this is a God who will give, 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 give. 
He's the God who provides. And what that literally means, literally, is, is the wording there that I studied is, He sees. Which means literally, He'll see to it. So when we're called by God to make an obedient sacrifice, it reveals something that we know. Listen, the testing of our faith is precious to God and it should be precious to us because the testing will reveal what we're really trusting in throughout our lives. It has the ability to purify our faith. It says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into temptations and trials and all these different things. I don't know about you, but the last thing I am is joyful. When the test and the trial comes. And I wish there was again an alarm that goes off of. This is a test. This is only a test. Can I tell you? What I've learned about God as I've followed him in obedience. Is it's all a test. It's all a place for us to lay it once again and build that. I think, I think, I think Abraham quit building altars of sacrifice. Because he thought he had finally gotten to a place of completion. There's many people under the sound of my voice. You've gotten to a place in your life where you're comfortable. You got enough in the retirement account. You got enough over here that you could live on and just live. But I'm telling you, God is calling you once again to make Him your source for everything. Even though that you have become your own source, the Lord is saying, I want to be your source again. So what is it that even God is calling you today to sacrifice by way of of serving others, of loving others, of doing something for somebody else. Let me conclude today. Mount Moriah is a significant and sacred location in the Bible. It is associated with the offering of Isaac, the building of the first temple, and later the ministry of Jesus. It serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness. His ultimate sacrifice that we'll study here in a few weeks for mankind. As believers, we are constantly called, according to Romans, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Church, that's a daily thing where you lay yourself and surrender yourself on the altar and you say, Lord, I'm laying myself aside so that you can live in me and through me to a lost and dying world. Amen? But sometimes we get into that place where we get comfortable. We think we know everything God's up to. Listen, if, if, if you came in here and you're comfortable in your walk with the Lord... I came to afflict the comfortable this morning because I want you to start listening for the voice of the Lord and what He's calling you to lay upon the altar this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to begin here and say this. Some may have never begun that journey with the Lord. You've never, by faith, trusted and believed in Him as your sacrifice, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, that all begins, and, and don't, don't try to get me to understand this completely, but when you pray a simple prayer with the heart of faith, listen what happens. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Your sins are taken away as far as the east is from the west, and the blood of Jesus now becomes the sacrifice for your sin. It's the most beautiful story of truth that's ever been told. That God loves you so much, He does not want to spend eternity apart from you, so He paid the price for you to go. Now, that doesn't mean that you just live any old way after you pray and believe. 
It actually means you're a new creation that wants to be filled with God's word, wants to spend time in God's presence, wants to worship Jesus with abandon, wants to get connected with other people. I want to ask that question first, and then I'll move to the second part of our response today. But who would say this morning, I just need to, I, I, I need to get right with God. I need to, I need to pray and just give my life over to him and to get, get saved and reborn today. Anybody in this room? Anybody? Anybody? Praise God, we're all believers here today. So look back this way for just a minute. Here's, here's my final challenge for everybody in here. As we study Mount Moriah in Genesis 26, we'll go to Mount Sinai next week, come back. We'll continue on this journey towards Easter of seven mountains in the Bible. And we'll go to Sinai next week. But this morning, I think it would help us to ask this question, Lord, what do you want me to do? Those are two most important questions. Paul asked Jesus when he was on the road to Damascus. He said, Lord, who are you? And Lord, what do you want me to do? Could we end today with all of us collectively saying, God, we want to obey you extravagantly. We want to lay whatever you want us to lay down at your altar. Bow your heads with me this morning. Father, as pastor of this wonderful church and hearing the response from these wonderful people who love you. God, we love you. Like Abraham did, we love you. We're people of faith. But we also know, Lord, that the tests that come can reveal who you are and who we are. So, Father, we say today that we lay down whatever we're holding on to. We let it go in faith. We put it upon the altar today of sacrifice, knowing, God, that whatever you have planned for it is up to you, whether it's resurrection or whether it's stopping us at the last moment, whatever it is. We say today, Father, that we will obey you no matter what, that we know, God, faith without works is dead and works without faith is religion. We don't want either, God. We want faith that produces fruit of righteousness in our lives. And Lord, would you give us strength? Would you give us clarity? Would you give us an ability supernaturally to lay everything down before you today? To sacrifice it upon the altar of of what you're calling us to do, God. We pray that today. We lay it down before you. And Father, today, I bless Christian Center Church. As their pastor, I pray they'd be blessed as they've come in and blessed as they go out. They'd be blessed at work and be blessed in their homes. God, that your face would turn towards them, shine and smile upon them, and that you would give them and grant them peace and rest. Father, I pray protection over them and our families and our children's children, Lord. Put angels around about each one of us and watch over us until you bring us back together at your appointed time, God. Father, we love and praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' holy name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go in the name of the Lord and be blessed. The tithe and offering boxes are in the back if you need to utilize those. Love you all. Nobody's told you they love you. Your pastor loves you.